Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. I am your host, Emily Priestley. I am a dog behavior consultant who specializes in herding breed dogs who struggle in their pet homes. On the podcast, we dive into the training universe and talk to some of the leading experts in our field. I sat down with Erin Maloney from Raising Potential about dog aggression. We have so much to say about this subject, and Erin will be back for part two, probably part three and four, as her and I dive deeper into the nuances of one of her specialties. Erin also works with horses, which should be another podcast episode. You can see more about Erin at RaisingPotential.com and ErinMalonyEquines.com. Erin lives on a farm with her husband, her dogs Sadie and Strider, and all of their other animals, including chickens and horses. She is a graduate from the Academy for Dog Trainers and works with clients to help their aggressive dogs both online and in person. This episode is brought to you by my new book, Urban Sheepdog. This is a user manual designed for anyone out there who has a herding breed dog living in a pet home. The vast majority of my clients are healers and border collies and other herders struggling to fit into their new role of non-working dogs. This book is available on Amazon, so don't forget to follow me on social media at Wild at Heart Dogs for links to the podcast and my webinars, classes, and private training. And without further ado, here's Erin. So I'm here with Erin, and we were just chatting about um, getting going on today's episode, and we're talking about dog aggression. We were originally going to talk about um, dog-dog aggression and what that looks like. Um, but aggression is such a, a, a huge topic. So, um, we're just going to dive in and start giving everybody some, um, primer, the primer on what dog aggression is, what, how it manifests, where it comes from, um, what it is, what it isn't. And we're just going to try and get everyone started on just understanding aggression, because it, I think it is one of those behaviors that comes with so many myths and misconceptions um, and then so much, so many of our, um, ideas about what's happening really cloud, what is really going on. Um, so Aaron, welcome to wild at heart podcast. Thanks for having me, Emily. I'm so excited to be here and talk about, um, aggression in all shapes and forms. Um, as we were talking about before, literally every single case I'm working with is some form of fear aggression, whether that's they're fearful and then acting aggressive, or I get called in because someone got bit or a dog got bit, or they're reactive and the owners are worried that it's going to like turn into aggression if the dog gets off leash. Um, so I am, this is what I do all day, every day. So I'm <laughs> it's so amazing to talk about this uh, subject and educate people so that I don't have to be taking this all day, every day. <laughs> Yeah, well, walk us through how that became your thing. So, you know, we all, I think, um, in some form or another, you know, specialize. I know a lot of trainers that work with many um, behavior types, but uh, many of us specialize. So we work in separation anxiety or we work with reactivity or, you know, like me, I work more with certain types or breeds of dogs. Um, but how, what was it about aggression that um, that got you you know, drawn in in the first place? And how did, why are you, why is it that you're working so many of these cases? Yeah. So my dog, Sadie, who is the inspiration for my logo, 
Um, she is the reason I got into fear and aggression and she's the reason I went into the Academy. So just like you, I'm a graduate of the Academy for dog trainers. Um, and I picked that program specifically because of the emphasis on fear and aggression. So Sadie was, we think about a 10 month old border collie mix. I did a DNA test and it's got every crazy high energy, aggressive tendency breed in her. So she's just a mess of everything that could go wrong in a dog. Um, and from a behavioral standpoint, um, and so I knew nothing about training. I actually, funny enough, when I got her, I was like, you don't need to train a dog, which is absolutely hilarious thinking about that. <laughs> um, and within like a month or two, she started being reactive and I was like, well, this is interesting. How do I deal with this? And I met friends at the dog park. She was very pro-social. She was the type of dog that like everyone knew her because she just got along with everyone. Um, and over time, I realized how many mistakes I made with her in terms of like, she was a bully at the dog park and I didn't realize that. So I didn't pull her out of those situations and start teaching her she shouldn't be like, charging and bullying over dogs and barking at them if they didn't want to play with her. Um, but like long story short, her aggression turned into a frustration based or her reactivity turned into a frustration based aggression. So I was like, Hey, Sadie, stop barking at that dog. And then she started getting this negative associations with the dogs that she was barking at. And like now, um, as I was telling you earlier, like she's not allowed to meet a dog unless she's muzzled because I unintentionally gave her so many negative associations with dogs. And as we both know, dogs become more selective as they get older. So while she still loves to play with my other dog and I 100% trust her with him, um, I just have to be really careful when I do introduce her to other dogs and she's only allowed to meet dogs with certain personalities. Um, and we just work on meeting her energy and exercise needs in other ways. But she started me on this trend and then I got partnered with my mentor at the time, Tiffany Christensen. She actually passed away last year. Um, and she, her like goal in life was to save all the dogs who would be put down and like work on trying to rehabilitate them. And like one of her hardest cases was a cane Corso that was sent to an e-collar trainer as a puppy. And every time the dog went to the bathroom in the house, they would shock it. Wow. And um, she spent a year rehabilitating this dog. And I will say that dog never got potty trained. Shocking your dog when they pee in the house will not potty train them. Um, that dog just learned to become afraid to go to the bathroom in front of people. So it would sneak off, go to the bathroom. And if you caught it going to the bathroom, it would lunge at you. And it had a very bad ABI, um, which is... Um, why can't I think of what ABI stands? Acquired by inhibition. <laughs> um, so she bit hard. She was a year old. She'd had all these negative associations with people at this point because people just did nothing but shock her the first year of her life every time she did something they didn't like. Um, and so she became a very aggressive dog. So Tiffany kind of instilled that we can correct these behaviors and we can teach these dogs that they don't have to do this aggressive behavior and we can rehabilitate them. It's not a death sentence just because they start biting. Um, 
And usually the reason they're biting is because us as humans put them in a position where they feel like they need to. So um, I'll probably start getting emotional if I keep talking about Tiffany, um, but I have kind of made it my mission to fulfill her legacy of continuing to try to keep dogs from being put down and rehomed um, wow. because people don't know any better. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that there's so much unpacked just in that alone. I mean, I think if we even go back to Sadie, um, I would love to do just a podcast episode alone with trainers who, t- who are talking about, you know, our own dogs and how they're not perfect, because I think there's this big misconception out there that we just have these robot dogs that we all have these perfect dogs and that's not the case. Um, and so I think there's like a whole, a whole episode there alone. And then if we talk about Tiffany's work and now your work, um, you know, this, I think that also brings up so much there as well. You, you know, even w- later on, we can talk about, um, mistakes that people make and how, you know, we, we might think it seems like a good idea to do something like shock a puppy for peeing in the house. And we don't realize that we're making, um, we're digging ourselves a deep hole. We're causing major issues there. And so we can, so I, I would love to unpack that as well. Just the common mistakes that we make. So you're working these, um, you know, pretty intense cases. We talked before about like resource guarding, um, you know, dog, dog aggression, all of these, these different, um, major behavior problems that are, that really are disrupting peace in the home for people. And they are dangerous for a lot of people, but let's go right back to basics and just unpack for me when we're talking about aggression, what are we talking about? Because I really see so often um, like I was saying at the beginning, we, I think we have all of these misconceptions about what aggress, what an aggressive dog is or what they're doing. And I think that we still think in today's day and age that they are bad dogs and that they're just being, you know, for lack of a better term, I even hear them, you know, people calling them jerks, assholes, and all of these, um, these things. Um, so unpack for me when we're talking about aggression, what are we, what is specifically, are we talking about? That is a great question. I think it's super important to define that. Um, One of the, I guess my definition based off of what I work with and what people contact me for and what I look at when I'm saying, is this actually an aggressive case is um, a dog that for whatever reason is growling, snapping, snarling, biting, a behavior that appears mean. And it's typically, if we look at it from a behavioral analysis standpoint, trying to get something to go away from them. Um, So if you can kind of picture the, typically I see this image with like a Rottweiler because of how they've been bred, but just that like eyebrows furrowed in, eyes are kind of slitted, showing their teeth, their like lips are pulled back. They've got this like bracing stance looking at someone like it looks like it's going to lunge and bite. Um, And maybe that dog, that quote unquote aggressive dog has bit. Maybe they've just been growling and snarling enough. And people say, you know what? I'm afraid this is going to turn into a bite. I want to bring a trainer into the picture. Um, But when I get called in as a trainer, those are the things I'm typically getting called in for. And I think um, for me, there's one sentence in there that you, one thing that you said that really stands out for me about aggression, and that is 
the dog is trying to get something to leave them alone or something to go away. And um, one of the most common misconceptions that I see around aggression is that the dog is um, not struggling or not upset. And that, you know, I think we mistake dogs who are moving forward towards something. It's hard for us to wrap our head around the fact that they're just trying to get that thing to go away. And so when we look at um, fear, which I think we should talk a bit about, especially around aggression, I think we all, you know, we see like a little chihuahua who is like their ears are back, their tail is tucked, they're sitting on their owner's lap, they're terrified, they're shaking, you know, their eyes are squinting. We see that as fear. And I think in many cases, we see that as a dog who does need support and some, you know, I think we, we feel sympathy for that dog. But when a dog is now, you know, closing, narrowing the gap, they're coming towards a thing that is scary to them. You know, like that Rottweiler that you talked about, or like the shepherd, um, or like like I work with the cattle dogs. They're now they're closing the gap. They're coming towards the thing that is scary. We, I think, commonly mistake that as not fear because why would a dog close the gap if what they're actually asking for is space? Um, so walk us through what fear looks like in relation to aggression, or how how do they overlap, or how can we better understand a dog who is showing you know fear when they're also being aggressive? I'm so glad you brought this up because it brings me to body language, and understanding body language has helped every single owner I work with. And the cases that are successful are the owners who bother to learn what body language looks like um, in a neutral, a happy, and a scared and or aggressive dog. Um, so I've started encouraging all of my clients to get Lily Chen's doggy language books, a little plug for her there, because it's just been incredibly helpful. Um, but I look at the body language of the dog. So if I want to understand the dog's emotional state, I'm going to look at what activities are they engaged in and what does their body language look like while they're doing them? So Strider has been my dog Strider. He's my youngest one. Um, God bless him for putting up with Sadie's bullying. God behaviors. bless him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I will say I specifically picked him out to be a good match for her so that we could get into that for a whole nother topic too. Um, but he is so expressive with his body language and it has been so useful, especially with my virtual clients, because I can bring him over and say, do you see his eyes getting big? Do you see him side eyeing me? Do you see his ears go back? Do you see him pulling away? That's all signs he's not comfortable. And then I immediately give him a cookie, but I'm using him as a demonstration to show them a really expressive body language. So those are just a handful of things that I look for. Um, when I'm brought into an aggressive case, because 90% of the time I'm getting calls that say it comes out of nowhere. And I'm like, do you see that freeze response? Do you see those eyes get big? Do you see the lip protracting? Do you see the body just all over stiffening? Um, do you see the tail go from like happy, loose, waggy and the whole body going from happy, loose, waggy to just still and stiff and the position might get low or, or it might get erect because the dog's alert. Um, starting to understand all of that body like is our warning signs. And that's our warning signs are just a way to say the animal is not comfortable. Um, and so whatever is making the animal uncomfortable, whether that's body handling, whether that's another being, whether it's a dog or a cat or a human moving towards its resources, um, another dog just being out in public. Maybe they're just like, what are you doing on the street? Mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff 
is saying, I don't like this for whatever reason. And a lot of time it's just fear, especially of losing resources. Um, and I see that with Sadie, like even with Strider, she says, Hey, I, this is my mom. I'm getting pets right now. You can come back later and she'll give him side eyes and things like that. Um, and then poor Strider is like, but she's my mom too. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we just, we manage that really well with making sure everybody's comfortable and not putting anyone in like any situations they sh- don't need to be in. Um, but just starting to understand that body language, you start realizing what's making your dog uncomfortable. And then it can help you start understanding like, oh, you don't like it when I take the toy out of your mouth when we're playing tug. You're kind of guarding that toy a little bit. Um, or you don't like that neighbor dog across the street who barks at you all day. And frankly, I don't blame you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so- the neighbor dogs are a common, very common <laughs> issue for sure. We have, <laughs> we do, we can create enemies and we see that so often with our dogs when there's, you know, that shepherd behind the fence um, that the dog knows is there, you know, that kind of thing. I see that so often with my clients where there's these enemies in the neighborhood. So I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. So Uh, body language, I love body language because, um, you know, we know, you know, for example, um, kids, they don't see body language. They don't see warning signs coming. Um, but usually as adults, I think what we're talking about is, um, really overt signs. So we're talking about snarling, snapping, growling, and all of, you know, those, those really clear signs, but I'm glad that you brought up some of this, these more subtle signs because, when we're looking at a lot of these cases, there have been, um, it's so common for us to hear, you know, it came out of nowhere, there was no warning signs, but maybe we did have a dog who was raising their paw, or maybe we did have a dog whose ears were back or their tail was slightly tucked, or that they did have, you know, whale eye, as we call it, like their eyes got, you know, stiff or wide. And so they can be giving us all of these signs and we miss them. The dog might say, I was asking for space and nobody listened. And so I had no choice, but, you know, to, to basically make you go away. Um, so the way that I like to phrase it to my clients, um, is that, you know, fear is the dog saying, I'm afraid I'm uncomfortable about something. And now I want to go away. Whereas aggression is the dog saying I'm uncomfortable about something, or I'm scared of something and I'm going to make them go away. Um, if anyone's ever been aggressed upon by a dog, you can see why they do it because it works. (laughs) You know, generally you do, you pull back or you leave. Right. So, um, I just think it's so important that we recognize that these dogs, Dogs are still struggling. They're not out to be, you know, quote unquote assholes or jerks or anything like that. Does that yeah. ring true? And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because like when I'm talking to clients about all of this body language in regards to aggressive behavior, I say they're telling you with all of these subtle signs and you're missing it because frankly, the general public isn't educated on it. Um, and I was like, I for me as a dog trainer working in aggression, I would love for like every high schooler to have be required to take like dog body language so they can understand, but it's just, it's all missed. And so the, I, I always tell people like, they've been telling you, you've been missing the signs that say I'm uncomfortable. So they feel the need to aggress because that's the only thing that you've been listening to. And typically with these dogs in these cases, and especially ones that end up surrendered in shelters or euthanized, it's like, 
They've been telling you for potentially years and you've been ignoring them and they finally found something that works. And that goes back to what Jean tells us all the time in the academy is dogs do what works. So if growling and snapping at you is what gets them, gets you to finally listen to them saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable, they're going to keep doing it. Absolutely. And that actually would bring up for me um, something else that is this, these are all um, huge topics. We could probably do podcast episodes about every single point that we're talking about. But um, when we're talking about missing signs, so this is something we, you know, we just out, put this out on the table. Like we often miss signs. There's these subtle signs. A dog is begging for space and we're not listening. Let's talk about common mis mistakes that we could make, starting with um, the big one, which is punishment around these issues. So um, when we hear people talking about these dogs being assholes or jerks or this behavior as being, you know, um, they're being dramatic and these sorts of things, what what I see a lot is that the behavior is being punished. So um, we talked about the dog in the beginning that was shocked for something simple like a house training issue. Let's talk now about the dogs who are punished for something like growling and how that can, you know, make this even worse of a situation for everybody involved. Yeah, so... Um... Tiffany, when she was teaching me, she said, like, never punish a growl. And I think any ethical dog trainer would agree with that. Never punish a growl because that's a warning sign. Um, and she taught me the ladder of aggression. And I can't remember who came up with it. And I know there's some mixed information on it. But it's been really helpful for me explaining to people, like, okay, the dog's giving you the subtle body language you ignore it. So they're going to say, okay, what's the next thing I can do? Well, now I can growl. Well, I don't want you to growl. That's mean. So then you punish them. And that could be yelling at them. That could be shocking them. That can be putting them in a room for growling, like whatever it is, you're punishing them for growling. So the dog says, hmm, growling didn't work. I'm going to do the next thing I can think of doing. Now I'm going to snap at you. Oh, now I'm really upset because you're snapping. So now I'm going to punish you again. And the dog says, okay, snapping didn't work. Let's try something else. So then we get biting. And I've seen this with dogs where it's like, you have a dog that starts off with a really good bite inhibition. And what I mean by that, because for everyone listening, they may or may not know, um, is a dog that has a really soft mouth. So when they do bite, they may not leave a mark. They might leave a scratch. They might leave a very small puncture. They might leave a large, deep puncture. They might leave multiple punctures. They might bite multiple times. And this is um, Dr. Ian Dunbar came up with this scale. And so us as aggression and dog trainers um, use this to help determine like how safe is this dog basically. Um, and I've seen dogs go from like a level one or two bite inhibition, which is regarded as pretty safe. It's like a light bite with maybe a bruise to like a level four to five because the owner has punished them for biting and growling. So if that doesn't get through to you, how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to punish a dog that is upset. Um, I'm going to repeat myself. I've seen a dog that goes from a light bite inhibition. So it might just put its mouth on you and say, hey, I don't like that, to multiple bites with multiple punctures and bruising, scarring. Um, owner probably should have gone to the hospital and got stitches, but didn't um, because they were punished 
for growling. Yeah, I mean, I I know it's hard for owners to wrap their heads around. And I, I've had a dog who growls um, during handling Zelda. <laughs> Zelda would growl at um, every member of the family while she was, you know, resting if somebody pet her. Um, and she didn't growl at me um, until one day she did. I was petting her and she growled. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she growled at me. And I get that it can feel... Um, personal, like we can take it as a personal, um, you know, slight. But what I always told my family and how I felt about it was we should thank her. We should thank her because she's letting us know in a very normal and very safe way. She doesn't want to be touched right now. And so when I hear about dogs who are, you know, growling or they're giving all of these, you know, very clear or even subtle body language, like warning signs and asking for space, um, or dogs who are biting and they're air snapping or they're not, you know, breaking skin intentionally, we have to thank those dogs. We have to thank them. And the big thing that I really want to drive home to people is we have to make sure that we're not putting them in the position, um, to be exposed to something that is detrimental to them just because they're being, um, fair to us. So, so many times I see dogs who are, um, you know, they're, they're air snapping. They refuse to bite the kids. Let's say the kids in the home just keep coming over and keep invading their space and keep bugging them and climb all over them. And the dog just keeps growling and air snapping. We have to make sure that we protect those dogs, in my opinion, the same as we would if that dog was hurting a child and sending them to the hospital. It's not fair to, you know, put them, expose them to something like that just because they are being so respectful and trying not to hurt us. Does that, I, I think I've, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but does that ring true for you? Have you seen that where we, we we're putting dogs in positions to um, experience something that is bad for them because they're being uh, fair to us in return? Yes. And I can't tell you how many clients I say I have that are like, this is like the sixth dog I've had in my life or the third dog I've had. Like they've had multiple dogs. They've always treated dogs this way. And suddenly, not that they were trying to be mean to the dog, they weren't trying to punish them or anything, but this dog growls. And they're like, I'm not doing anything differently. Why is this dog growling? And I said, God bless your previous dogs for being saints for putting up with the things they didn't like. I'm willing to bet if you went back and looked at videos of those dogs, they'd be showing you all this subtle body language that says they don't like it. And this dog has said, you know what, I've had enough. Um, and I especially see that with my body handling cases of dogs that don't like being petted or they have pain somewhere and the owner and the vet haven't addressed to the pain. And most dogs don't like having their snouts touched and their ears rubbed all over, but a lot of dogs won't react, but you have mm -hmm. one that does. So you need to work with the dog in front of you, not the dog you had previously. Um, and we could go on a whole tangent about that too. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. This is the problem with this, right? There is just so aggression is um, very basic in that we can summarize it in one sentence, but it's so complicated and there's so many, there's so many little aspects to it. One thing that is, I know a mountain that you die on and it's a mountain that I die on and you just brought it up and I really want to talk about it today is pain. So um, I probably more than I should, I really um, err on the side of um, concern that many dogs that are dealing with 
um, all, all sorts of behaviors, everything from like separation anxiety to reactivity to aggression, fear, all of these things that a lot of them are dealing with undiagnosed pain. And I know that this is something that you talk about a lot with dogs, but you also talk about it a lot with horses. We're also going to do a podcast eventually about your work with horses, but let's start. Um, I would love to just give everyone listening an idea of just how much something like pain can influence their dog's aggression. Um, is this something that you see a lot or how do you, are you, am I off on a, uh, in left field or do you also agree that pain is, is something we need to talk about? I 100% think that pain is something we need to talk about um, because if there is pain, there's only so far we can get with helping the dog and the behavioral issues if the pain is not being addressed. So if there's a medical issue going on with your animal or your person in your house, regardless of what type of therapy training they're going through, we cannot resolve it unless the medical issues are addressed. Um, so I see a handful of cases um, that I talk to the owners and say, hey, have you looked into hip dysplasia? Have you looked into a joint issue? Is there a previous injury with this dog? Um, and if they say, yes, we've like, I have a dog I started with recently, they said, yep, he's got these pain issues. He's actually, we've had him for a year. He sprained his leg three times in that year we've had him because he's got a joint issue. We have him on pain medication. We have him on a treatment plan with our vet. And I say sweet, because that means that box is checked off on my assessment list and I can just get started on training. Um, if that box is not checked and we haven't written out pain when we're dealing with aggressive animals, then um, that's something that depending on the case, I will want evaluated. Um, if you don't have a vet that's very savvy on that, I will refer you to someone um, and just say, hey, can you get a pain evaluation done? And if they're willing, maybe if they think there's a possibility that we need x-rays or trialing a pain medication, um, then that's going to help our training. And that's how I address it with my clients is saying like, if, if there is a pain issue, you can pay me all the money in the world. I'm not going to be able to help you with your dog. We're only going to get to a certain point with their behavior, but the pain needs addressed. And I usually compare that to like, if you've ever had surgery or frankly, with like women with menstrual cycles, um, if you're on your period, you're not feeling good that week. You feel cranky and ornery and you lash out and every little thing just seems to be heightened. And that's just us on our period. Nonetheless, something major going on like um, hip dysplasia or I have a dog that has a double jointed shoulder um, and he wasn't on pain medication. And I was like, he's limping in our session. He's limping at your house. Like, why is he not on pain medication? Um, and I will say they got a pain evaluation. They put him on a, um, medication that directly affects, um, osteoarthritic pain. And within a week and a half, he was having fewer reactivity outbursts. He was more friendly with meeting new people and he was jumping on people for the first time. So <laughs> that yeah, that's amazing because I think, um, the, the big issue too is so limping is, 
I wish every dog that was in pain was limping because so many of them don't. And I think that they just, we have this concept that like, you know, we, even if we go to the vet and the vet does a nose to tail exam, nothing came back on that exam. It has to be fine. So it's not, it has to just be behavior. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we can make. And I agree if, you know, if everything checks out and I have a lot of clients who have done blood work, x-rays, all sorts of things, everything's come back normal. In some of those cases, I'm still, I'm still like, well, I still think there might be pain somewhere, but we're going to get right down to training. But if the dog is in pain, you're right. They can throw all of the money in the world at training. And I think we're still going to spin our wheels because the root of that issue isn't a training. It's not a training issue. In fact, the training's been probably already done. It's I'm uncomfortable and I'm in pain and I need space. We're actually in the process right now of doing uh, a pain control trial with um, Mozzie, who we think probably has hip dysplasia. So she's going to be going in and having x-rays um, and the difference that it's made just having, she's not aggressive, um, but there's other little subtle signs that I've seen from her that indicate that there might be pain. Um, and this is where it really breaks my heart is like a dog like Mozzie, she doesn't, you know, limp. She's not showing, um, I think, what people might think of when they think of signs of pain. She's just um, chasing the ball and then tootling off and going and like eating grass and sniffing elsewhere. She's, you know, taking herself out of the game, um, just little things like that. And when we trialed her on pain control, which she's on right now, her entire world, she's been on for a week and she's gone back to acting like she's a year and a half. So something's going on. Um, and it's my duty as her guardian to make sure that I address that, even though she's not being aggressive. Thank bless Mozzie. <laughs> you know, when we talk about these dogs, we can thank them. I can thank Mozzie for, you know, she's not being aggressive in that. But I think people, um, We've done a really poor job of selling to, to the public what pain looks like in our animals. And so um, please, if you're out there and you're dealing with a dog that has any kind of aggression, um, it's something that I do think that we have to we have to look at. We had dogs in shelter as well who had suffered, you know, pretty, pretty bad pain at some point in their life. And even though the medical condition was treated, the the response stuck around. So, you know, small dogs with ear infections, you know, so painful to have their ears pet um, and touched. And after the ear infection was treated, the dog was still uncomfortable about humans reaching towards their ears because that had caused pain for so long. So I think it's a mountain that we should always die on. Um, and it's something that I really, I really encourage people to make sure that they get checked out if they're dealing with any kind of aggressive, aggressive behavior. Um, and I want to add to that, um, that just because your dog is on a pain medication doesn't mean it's the right pain medication. So this, uh, dog with the double jointed shoulder, um, that we got on the right pain medication, he was adopted from the shelter a year earlier on, a different medication. She took him to the vet for his just routine stuff about a month later. And the vet said, Oh, I see he's on, um, it was carprofen. And she said, I see he's on carprofen. Um, is that helping? And the owner's like, I don't know. He's that's what he came on from the shelter. So she said, well, if you want to see if it helps, we can take him off of it for two weeks, which I don't know about the ethics of that, but that's a different discussion. Um, so they took him off of it. She saw no change in behavior. So they just kept him off of it rather than trialing a different pain medication with a dog with a known joint issue. Um, so 
Yeah. And I think that's probably another whole podcast. And I would, we should have a vet on to talk about that because I've seen that a lot lately where dogs are on a certain pain control. Um, and that pain control doesn't even tackle the type of pain that the dog is experiencing. So, um, Mm. definitely something it's just like behavior medications, right? You might start on one, um, and it just might not be the right fit and we might need to trial additional medications. Yes. Yes. And we could go on a whole tangent, I think about talking about behavior medications with animals. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's another (laughs) whole podcast. We have there's, this is going to be an entire, the dog aggression podcast is going to be a new one just because there is so, <laughs> there's so much to cover here. Um, before you came on, I was chatting with my, um, uh, my followers on social media. And one of the things that came up a lot when I told them that I was going to be talking to you about dog aggression was questions around. So I deal with a lot of people who have reactive. So your dog is a herding mix. Um, Lots of people who have herding breed dogs who are reactive. And this can be really challenging, this concept that not all reactivity is um, aggression, even though, you know, we have the same kind of overlap in behavior, lunging, growling, um, hackles up, you know, snarling, snapping, all of those things. But the biggest question that was coming up on social media was, what is the difference between, say, reactivity and aggression or bullying and aggression? So can you guide us through, um, you know, the difference between we'll start with reactivity. What's the difference there between is every reactive dog that we see lunging and pulling towards us on leash? Are they all aggressive or what's going on with those dogs? That's such a good question. And I so reactivity for people who don't know is a dog that it's a label we put on dogs that bark and lunge on leash or out the window. Um, And I put reactivity into two categories when I'm working with cases. I put it into um, fear aggression or frustration. And I will say personally, I would much rather work with a fear aggression-based reactive dog than a frustration-based because a frustration-based dog is, reactive dog is a dog that's like, oh my God, I want to go say hi. And I have big feelings about it. Um, So those big feelings come out in pulling, barking, lunging. Um, So that's what Sadie does when people come to our house. She is like out the window. She's like, oh my gosh, mom, let them in the house. Let me outside. I got to go say hi to them. Now, if there's a dog out the window, she's like, you need to stay away from my house. You need to stay away from my mother. You need to stay away from my brother. You need to stay away from my dad. Um, so she's got kind of a combination of both. So she's been quite a challenge to work on her reactivity. And there's a reason we've been working on it for five years. Um, versus like a fear reactive. So I've talked about the frustration A fear reactive dog is like, I am scared and I want you to go away. Um, and so the dog is barking and lunging because they don't like other dogs. They don't like people. They don't like men wearing hats. They don't like kids with backpacks. They don't like kids running around. Strider does not like kids because when he was a puppy, he wasn't around kids. Um, so we've had to be really careful about having him interact with the right kids and managing him around kids to make sure he's safe. Um, but And the only time I've ever seen him growl or bark at a person was a kid because they were charging at him. Um, So that that bark and that lunge is him saying, you are making me uncomfortable. 
Um, and the reason I would rather work with um, a fear-based reactive dog is because I'm using classical conditioning with those dogs, which we could go into a whole tangent about operant versus classical conditioning, but it's basically just making a positive association with whatever they're worried about. And I just find it so much easier to manage dogs that are uncomfortable because we can use distance. We can use how long they're exposed to the thing they're worried about. Um, we can do really controlled setups. Um, and we're just working on that positive association, typically with food, because it's the easiest to carry with us and work with, um, versus a frustration dog is like, I know you really, really want that, but I, you can't have it right now. And I need you to stop having big feelings about it. And it's so funny one. because I'm the opposite. I would take a frustrated dog all day long. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Well, you take my frustrated dogs and I'll take your fear ones and we'll just help all the dogs. <laughs> the reason I think for me that I would take frustration um, over fear aggression is simply because I find it easier to move forward with because fear is such a slippery slope and it, some dogs just will not ever feel more comfortable. Um, you know, I think we always owe it to the dog to try because what if we even make it 5% better, 10% better? Um, mm -hmm. but fear is just such a slippery slope. And I just will take that frustrated, lungy, barky shepherd all day long <laughs> and throw him with some other dogs and, you know, and then teach him a new way of being. Um, but it's so, it's, I'm just so glad that you were able to break down for the listeners, the difference between reactivity and, aggression. And so the big thing there to remember, if you're listening, um, if you're not sure what you're experiencing, so it can be almost impossible even for professionals to tell if we don't have, you know, let's say we don't have history, we get a dog into a shelter who came in as a stray and they're lunging and things like that on leash. We may not even know looking at them, the difference. Um, so it's really important that you get with someone who can help tease that out for you. Um, but, um, let's also talk about bullying. So we go to the dog park. I think you mentioned in the beginning that Sadie was started out as a bully. Um, so we go to the dog park and we have a dog who is bullying or just being rude, running around, you know, not being there's they're there. Maybe they want to play, but they're not doing it in a very social way. Um, are you concerned about those dogs with aggression or how would you begin to approach that if you were working with a client? So, um, yeah, Sadie's a bully. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let's like just kind of describe bullying behavior. So if, um, I have a client come to me, they say, we take our dog to the dog park. He does really good, but he seems to, anytime there's a, I'm going to say doodle because I feel like doodles <laughs> become targets a lot for bullies. Um, there's a golden doodle that comes in and anytime they see a doodle come in, they run over and just bark at them. And it's like, they pin them to the corner. Um, and they just won't leave this dog alone and they just chase them around and kind of harass them the whole time. Um, that That's how I would describe bullying behavior. And um, the way we, with bullies, we have to, in my experience, and this might be my bias because of Sadie, so I will preface, like this is probably <laughs> a big mine. Um, I want to start addressing it as quickly as possible so that it doesn't turn into the dog aggressing towards 
that type of dog or aggressing towards other dogs in terms of they get worked up seeing this like target of theirs. Um, so doodles in the example that I'm giving. And so then they say like, oh, there's a doodle over there. I'm going to go like pin them because doodles are now a problem because I have this rehearsed behavior of targeting and pinning and barking at doodles. Um, so, and you, I think you work a lot more with rehabbing bullying cases than I do. Um, and that's, I think just us with our different experiences, but, um, and I don't have a lot of bullies I work with. Um, and when I do, I say like, how is it, how important is it for you to go to the dog park? Or do they have a couple friends that they can play with? Or does your dog actually enjoy playing? I find a lot of the cases I work dogs don't actually enjoy playing as much as we might think. Yeah, um, I find that as well. <laughs> and that, that can, can look like bullying too, of like, hey, go away. I don't want to play. Um, so bullying can look like aggression, but it's just more of a either I don't want to play with you or I want to play with you. And this is how I feel like I need to, but it's not necessarily appropriate and it scares the other dog. And I think that's the other thing is the other dog. Like often when I see a bully going after another dog, the other dog tends to like lay down on the ground, maybe expose its belly, try to get really small, basically saying like, Hey, you're, you're scaring me. Please go away. I'm not going to hurt you. And the bully is like, I know I'm trying to get you to play with me. Um, so, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Cause like I said, I don't work a lot of bullying cases. I actually don't work many bullying cases. What I do see a lot of is uh, misfired herding behavior. So um, dogs who are stalking other dogs, um, you know, t- lots of cattle dogs and border collies when they see an approaching um you know, dog, they're going to drop to the ground and then stalk it or rush and kind of, you know, charge at it. Um, and for me, those, those cases are the same as, you know, what we've been talking about in, in reactivity and things like that, where the behavior itself doesn't give us much information because we want to know what follows and not that I, I'm going to put a dog in the position to react, but I want to know, like, are they, you know, dropping to the ground when they see a playmate and then stalking their playmate and they want to play? Or is this something that's coming out when they see a dog that they're uncomfortable about and they they're not sure what to do? Um, and so it's that it's the this sort of, you know, her it's like how the dog moves through the world is um in the way that we bred them to move. And so it can be it can be something that a playmate doesn't want. Obviously, if a dog is stalking you, <laughs> it might not feel like they want to be your friend. And in some cases, it that's what they're trying to do. They're just trying to play. Um, but I don't work as many bullying cases, but I do really appreciate, um, you know, the information just so that people do understand that um, not all of these things are aggression. Certainly, though, if you are dealing with any of these issues, um, having someone help tease them out because there are times where I see dogs who are, say, bullying and they're labeled as, you know, aggressive dogs or they're hurting and they're labeled as aggressive. Maybe that's not the case. Um, and so we just have to be very careful about, um, I think, unpacking it and just helping the dog move through it based off of, you know, what they're actually doing rather than what we think they might be doing, if that makes sense. Yes. And I want to say if you have a dog friendly dog, and you are willing to help out your local trainer assess if a dog is playful or not. 
like having a dog friendly dog to test other dogs with is like one of the most useful things for a trainer. And as you've stated earlier, Emily, um, most trainers I find don't have social dogs. They have dogs with behavioral issues because frankly, we're the only ones that can handle them most of the time. Um, and we're kind of drawn to them. But Strider, I use him as my tester dog because he's got amazing social skills. Um, so if I'm ever not sure that a dog is dog friendly, I look at one, do we have some type of bite inhibition? And my bias is like, if I don't know, I'm going to muzzle a dog. So I'm going to make sure that dog is comfortable in a muzzle before I throw them in with my dog for everyone's safety. Safety first is always my priority. Um, but like I I'm working with a nine month old a uh, mixed puppy and she was in group classes and she was pretty reactive. Um, I have a small group class, so I was able to like make it a quasi obedience reactive class for them. And it worked really well. Um, but they ended up coming over one day and I did a play test with the puppy and Strider. And I was like, oh my gosh, her reactivity is her just wanting to play with dogs. Like she immediately went into like play bows and paw raises and she was a little nervous at first, but Strider is so good with other dogs that he like kind of sniffed and he's like, oh, you're uncomfortable. I'm going to go away or I can read the dog's body language and call him away. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give the dog space now or letting the dog sniff him. Um, so he's really good at like, I'll play if you want to, but if you're not sure about it, I'll give you your space. Um, and that is a very rare dog. So if you have that dog, if you want to be your local dog trainer's best friend and be willing to share that dog, we would appreciate you so much um, because it is, I feel like those dogs are one in a million to find. They are. I mean, we call them green dogs and I, you know, I, I, I wonder how many I've actually met <laughs> in my, <laughs> um, in my career, probably not many, I think a lot less than people would think. Um, my dogs, none of them, I think are suitable for that. Brie, um, Stormy just isn't into playing with other dogs. Um, Mozzie is going to be really uncomfortable about the owner of the dog. And Griffin is going to be um, very proximity sensitive to any of the happy, social, outgoing lab types. <laughs> and he's going to be extremely flirty and happy with any of the snarky female border collies. So, you know, <laughs> not a great, um, not a great lineup. <laughs> but um, so there's one thing that I do want to talk about. Um, and that is this, um, it this happens, I think, more than people realize. And that's, let's say, a dog um, goes after another dog. So they break off of a leash and they run across the street and there's a, a little argument. Um, neither dog is hurt and, but it's embarrassing. You know, it's, it's a lot, it's concerning. Um, but there's this kind of knee jerk reaction, which is I need to fix this, or I need to, you know, maybe even consider euthanizing the dog because what about the safety of children? Like it could be a child next and things like that. Um, let's talk a bit about the difference between, you know, a dog who is maybe aggressive towards another dog compared to a dog who is aggressive towards a human and what that looks like. And do we have to be worried about all of these cases? So that is a great question. And my dogs are a perfect example of this because Sadie is not good with other dogs, but I would 
trust her. Like I do trust her with small children. Like she's fantastic with people. She's insanely people friendly. Um, like I was describing before her, her frustration reactivity with wanting to say hi to everyone versus with dogs being like, get away from me. Strider on the flip side is fabulous with other dogs. He was terrified of people when we got him and it took us about two years to rehabilitate him. And now he runs up to the mailman. Um, but I mean, they're the perfect example of like, just because a dog gets along with dogs or gets along with people doesn't mean they're going to get along with the other species or they're comfortable with the other species. So I would look at the dog's um, experience with each species of, do they play with other dogs? Yes or no. Um, maybe they just have a problem with the neighbor dog, which usually the neighbor dog is barking at you across the street, which annoys me as a person. So of course it's going to annoy my dog. Um, and then versus like, how do they interact when we have people over? How do they do with my family? How do they do with, have they been around kids? Um, and I think that question itself of like, has my dog ever been around kids? Because you're not going to know until you put them in that situation. Um, and then I could go on a whole tangent about management and making sure everyone is set up for success, um, which I think we should talk about at some point. Um, it's another but... whole podcast, right? <laughs> management. <laughs> um, so just because your dog runs over and charges at the neighbor dog doesn't mean that they're they don't like people. I mean, if they like Sadie, she would a hundred percent, if I let her, she would a hundred percent go charge over at my neighbor dog across the street. Those dogs hate each other. Um, and their dog isn't dog friendly either. So we manage them by making sure everyone's either in a fenced yard or on a leash. Simple. Um, yeah. versus like, if someone were walking up our driveway, she would go over and jump on them and lick them and rub on them and say, Oh my gosh, how are you? I'm so happy you're here. So yeah, again, just because your dog doesn't like one species doesn't mean they dislike all other beings. It, it very much is that individual. And there are dogs that hate people and dogs, and there's dogs that love people and other dogs. Um, but you have to look at who that animal is as an individual and their experience and what they're comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, one of our very best dogs we ever had. Kasha was one of our pit bulls and she was not great with other dogs. She came to us, um, covered in scars from fighting with other dogs. Um, she did have to be crated and rotated in our house. For those who don't know, that's where you're using management systems to keep, you know, existing dogs in the home separated so that you're preventing, um, fights. Um, she was just the best dog with people though. And literally, I mean, I could open up a door, throw her into a room full of children and close the door. Not that I ever did that, but she truly was probably the best dog we've ever had with people. Um, and the worst dog that we've ever had with other dogs. So, um, but there are obviously there's going to be cases where they are bad with both. Um, and, but one, one doesn't necessarily predict the other, if that makes sense. So 
um, this concept of, you know, that there was a scuffle or something happened and that now like everybody's at risk. I know it can really seem like that might be the case. Um, but that's another reason to work with a behavior consultant. Just make sure that you've got it <laughs> teased out. The other area where we see this a lot is um, prey drive. So um, dogs who, you know, let's say, unfortunately, they get out and they kill a cat. Um, the same thing we hear people say, like, that could be a, a person next Um what what are your what are your thoughts about that or what are what is the difference between prey drive and a true aggression uh so strider is known as our in our house as the chicken slayer um <laughs> we have chickens and i think his chicken count at this point is 11 and we've been here about a year and a half um so he's got an insane prey drive i mean that boy will go like we let him run in the fields. He'll go chase deer. Um, he'll kill and eat anything he can get his paws on. Um, he would never, ever harm another dog unless he had to defend himself. And, and Sadie tests that every single day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then with people, he's fabulous with people who respect his body language and his boundaries. So I would never leave him alone in a room with a baby um, because that baby definitely isn't going to be able to understand him. And that's not setting him up for success to feel comfortable. Um, but that's not prey drive. That's him saying, Hey, I'm not comfortable with this versus prey drive is that I'm going to go eat my dinner. <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. catch my dinner. Um, and that's hundred percent what he does. He goes, he grabs the chicken and he's ready to chomp down on it. Um, we tell him to leave it. He drops the chicken and he says, but I caught my dinner. And I said, that's too bad. You're getting kibble instead. Um, <laughs> so like they're two completely different things. And just because you have a dog with a high prey drive that is a chicken slayer or a mouser or like Jack Russell's being like bred to be ratters um, just because they're going to kill these prey animals doesn't mean that they're going to be any bit unsafe with another dog or a person or even I think cats are kind of hit or miss because cats kind of fit into that prey drive for a lot of dogs. But I've also seen a lot of dogs with prey drive that do well with cats when they're set up for success. Yeah, it's funny. I um I think in North America we really package prey drive um in, you know, bundles, little cute, you know, bundles that we can we can tolerate. So like fetch, um, for example, we or squeaky toys um that are designed to mimic dying prey animals. We don't think about those as being in many cases, like I think in the dog world we do, but in a pet home, I think we don't, people don't think about them as being um, prey drive uh, substitutes or things that, you know, dogs are hunting, um, but that's exactly what they are. They're, they're, it's just, it's fun for the dog. It's exciting for the dog. Um, they love to squeak the squeaky toy. They love to de-stuff it. Um, they like to chase the ball. Um, but that's what that is, is, is prey drive. And we use that to train a lot of dogs. So like search and rescue dogs and the dogs that are, you see at the border that are sniffing out, um, you know, whatever it might be, drugs, things like that. A lot of times those dogs are getting something like that as a reward. Um, so it doesn't make the dog aggressive, but I do think that we actually just 
we like to almost cover up that side of our dogs. We don't like the, the side of our dogs that is, um, they need to acquire food. They need to, you know, their ancestors certainly did anyway. They, they had to go out and they had to get the, you know, whatever the bird, whatever it might be, the rat, right. Whatever that could be. Um, I saw a post recently on social media where somebody was talking, it was in a European country and they were talking about, um, about fetch and all of the comments from people were talking about how it was hunting. And I think we kind of cover that up here. We just like to pretend like it's not hunting, but that's really what it is. Um, but certainly not something that's going to lead to your dog being more aggressive towards dogs or towards people and things like that. So yeah, and I, I find it funny that you say that because Strider is not a super playful dog with toys. Like He'll like play fetch like three times and then he's like, this is it. But like you actually go let him hunt. Oh my gosh, he could do that all day. So I think it's like just because you have a dog that's going to go dissect a toy doesn't mean you have a dog that's going to go dissect your cat. Um, Correct. Yes. Yeah. Sadie will like destroy toys and she is constantly picking up toys and whacking them in everyone's faces to play. She has like cornered cats and groundhogs and just not known what to do. Um, so <laughs> like while they can mimic and be a fabulous outlet for drivey dogs, like I see your videos with Griff all the time with like, it's been such a good outlet for him for, with his hurting behaviors. Um, just because they do something with a squeaky toy doesn't mean that's going to be what they do with another animal. <laughs> Yeah. And I will say like when we're talking about aggr aggression and we're talking about prey drive um, and the differences, um, one thing too, that is very true is not all dogs will finish something. Not all dogs will follow right through. So Griffin is a good example of that. He will work for a ball. He will work for a Frisbee. He loves flirt pole. And these are all, you know, they all fall into that, you know, um, uh, category of, of, you know, prey substitutes, if you will. <laughs> um, but um, he's seen a rat um, and we've had birds that flew into our house um, and needed to be trapped and re-released. And he's also just recently been exposed to our chickens and there's zero, there's, there's almost a an unfortunate um, level of disconnect when he sees the rat. Like when he saw the rat, there was zero <laughs> response. And I kind of wish that there had been because um, that's a that's a moment where it could be really handy to have a dog who does have some follow through. Um, but it's certainly the way that he is with his flirt pole is not how he is with our chickens and is not how he is when the birds have flown into our house. He just kind of stares at them. <laughs> so yeah. it's very interesting how that comes out. But, but it's so important for people to understand just the difference there between you know, true aggression and um, food acquisition, which is what prey drive is. Yes. So let's leave our listeners with, um, uh, I want to leave them with some sage advice and I think you're the person to do it. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical, um, client and I hope that that hypothetical client is listening out there somewhere. Um, let's pretend we have someone who they did bring home a puppy. So they've got, um, they just went, brought home a puppy. The puppy is let's say 10 weeks old. Um, and this puppy is already showing, um, some fear and some aggression. Um, what is your, what is your takeaway for these people? What, what would you recommend? Do we wait and just see how this goes or what would you recommend to these clients to do today? 
Oh, that's such a big question. I could spend a whole podcast just answering that. <laughs> um, so my very first thing would be looking at what breed is this dog? Um, because that can tell us a lot. Like if it's a border collie, like what types of behaviors is it going to be more inclined to do versus like a chow or um, we have a lot of doodles around here um, or like a terrier. They're going to have different things that we can do to get them more comfortable and play and engage with the world um, and looking at how they're going to want to engage with the world. So um, then from there, I'm going to a hundred percent. If we've got like a 10 week old puppy say we need to socialize as much as possible, but in a very controlled manner to make that puppy safe. So when I say socialize, that does not mean take them to the dog park and go play with other dogs and meet all the people you can. That means, is this dog comfortable even getting in the car? Or do we have to work on getting this dog comfortable in the car? Um, can this dog go to the park and sniff around when there's two people there versus going to the local fair? Like, this is not the type of dog that I'm going to say, let's take it to the local farmer's market or fair right away. Maybe we can work up to that. And actually, I have a puppy that is now a nine-month-old giant German shepherd that I've been doing this with all summer um, that we're, we now went to the farmer's market and she did fabulous. But it started with, we go to the park on a bad weather day when there's one or two people there we get her comfortable sniffing around we get her able to like just do name recognition and orienting towards me tons of treats tons of play and again that what is the dog's breed that's going to be a behavior they enjoy doing is going to help with that play if i've got a terrier i'm going to be doing a ton of like sniffing and um find it type stuff um if i've got like a breed a herding breed I'm going to be doing more like the flirt pole and the fetch and things like that. If I have a dog that really loves tug, I'm going to give them any opportunity to do that. Um, I'm going to look at what's the body handling like at this point. So are they fearful of the environment? Are they fearful of people? Are they fearful of other dogs? Are they fearful of being touched? We're going to hundred percent like start getting into that. Um, and again, I could get the whole podcast on how to work on body <laughs> Um, so, but all of these are going to be in very tiny micro doses of training. So I'm never going to take a fearful animal and throw it into a stressful situation. I'm going to take them in the environment they're more, most comfortable in where they're most relaxed and give them like a 10th of a percent of stress. And that might be like, if I have a dog with body handling issues, reaching towards them once. And that's it. And that's our training for body handling or throughout the session. I'm like, okay, we're going to play tug and then we're going to stop the tug toy and I'm going to reach towards your back and not touch you. I'm going to stop six inches away. And then I'm going to give you the toy back and then make it a fun thing that you're being touched. Um, and just giving them as many opportunities to do species specific behaviors as possible. Um, to just let them know they're safe in this world. Because if I have a puppy that's not feeling safe in the world at 10 weeks old, we, we can do all the obedience training in the world. They're still not going to feel safe. We have to address the fact that they don't feel comfortable. And the earlier we can address that, the more success we're going to have long-term with them being a happy member of society, 
Um, and I also look at what are our goals for the dog. So this German Shepherd I've been working with over the summer, that is this case study, essentially. Um, she, their goal is to have her be a service dog. And I said, this puppy's not going to be a service dog if she's afraid to go out in public. If she's barking and lunging at people every time she walks by because she's worried about them, if she can't even take a quarter mile walk down the road um, or down the trail, she, she can't be a service dog. So we have to address these emotions before we can even start the obedience training that's necessary for a service dog. And if she can't pass this, she fails out of a service dog program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because we've been able to address this at nine months old, they take her into hardware stores, they take her to the park and she's doing absolutely fabulous. They're doing a cross country trip with them while they have some work on their house. And I feel like she's prepared for that, even though they're going to be gone for a month. So amazing. Uh, yeah, addressing addressing the emotional state before I would say like, so 10 week old puppy, my priority is going to be addressing the emotional state. I'm going to get a good recall because that's a priority for me with any dog I work with and we'll work on potty training, but we'll make potty training as least stressful as possible. But like 90% of the training we're going to be doing is working on that emotional state and making sure that dog feels comfortable in the world. And depending on the dog, we might need to be having a discussion with a vet or vet behaviorist about medication. I've had puppies that need to go on um, an anxiety medication because they just can't get comfortable. And it's been life-changing for them and their owners. Um, So, and I, you and I could probably give another whole podcast just (laughs) on how beneficial that is and how important that is depending on the case. Um, Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up. And especially in the case of puppies, because I think it's, it's still such a taboo thing um, and something that comes with so much stigma and I wish it didn't. Um, And, you know, anytime that we're dealing, I'm pro meds, um, you know, from the get go. And I really want to say when you look at cases, any case um, where you, you want to try everything before the medication. I just promise you, there is no metal that comes with that. There is no reason why we have to try, you know, all of the meds, meds don't have to be a last resort in any situation. So, um, I think it should always be one of the first conversations we're having with our vet, to be honest with you. And I will say like with my fear and aggression cases, if I have someone, if I have a case that I think meds would be beneficial, I say, I think this would be beneficial. This is something to discuss with your vet. If your vet isn't behavior savvy, I have a couple vets in my area that are, or I would be happy if you're a virtual client living somewhere else to do some work to try to find a behavior savvy vet in your area or get you connected with a vet behaviorist. Um, And if I have someone who's really resistant, I talk to it, like I mentioned with pain of we might hit a plateau. I'm willing to give it a go in most cases. There are a handful of cases where I say, if I feel like meds are 100% necessary for this to work. Um, and usually those are my really severe cases. Um, but I always say like, if we get stuck, this might be something we have to bring up later. Um, most cases I'm willing to give it a try without medication. Um, like I said, there's only a couple that I really encourage them to talk to their vet or one of my preferred behavior vets. Um, but I, I always preface with my clients, like this might be something that I bring up if we're not making progress, because if it is necessary for the dog, we're going to just hit a plateau with our training and it's not going to get better until the medication is on board, just like with pain. Yes. 
Well, Aaron, I can see why your business is a success and I can see why your clients come back to you time and again. Honestly, uh, you are such a pro. If there are people listening out there who want to work with you, how can they find you? Um, so my website is raisingpotential.com. That's P-A-W-T-E-N-T-I-A-L. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Raising Potential. Um, and then if you want to follow my equine training, you can find me on Facebook at Erin Maloney Equine Services or on Instagram at EM Equines. Um, and I'm working on getting my website set up for that. Um, so Amazing. Yeah. yeah. We're also for listeners, we are going to have Erin's going to come back on and talk about her work with horses. If you thought that the dog world is a mess when it comes to um, training and misconceptions, um, wait till you hear about the horse world. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you're working with horses now as well, because um, if if your work with dogs is any indicator, um, the horses are very lucky to have you in there on their side. So um, Aaron, did we do what we set out to accomplish? I think we did. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, and we'll have Aaron back very soon to talk about all things horses. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wild at Heart podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Wild at Heart Dogs, online at wildatheartdogs.com. I work primarily with herding breed dogs struggling with breed behaviors and reactivity, and I have a complete lineup of webinars, classes, and private virtual training options for clients. Artwork for the podcast was by the talented Ethan Beaudry, theme music by Adam Percy and inspired by Griff, our border collie. Sound editing and post-production was by Secret Clubhouse Sound on Denman Island. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and if you like the show, subscribe and follow and leave a review. If you have a guest you'd like to suggest, please reach out to me at wildatheartdogs at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.